Galatians chapter 4 in your Bibles, please. Proverbs 27.6 tells us this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. When one considers the concept of a friend, there are perhaps many different ideas that come to mind. Perhaps when you think of a friend, you think of a support system. Perhaps when you think of a friend, you think of an ear that will listen to you. Perhaps you think of someone who shares your common interests. Perhaps you think of someone who you can trust. Some of us uh, make friends very easily. Others of us, not so easily. Some of us feel that great need to have many friends. Others of us, we're okay. But friends, without question, are a blessing from the Lord. When the Bible speaks of a friend, it considers many things. The word friend comes up many times. But one of the most clear and direct attributes of a friend, as the Bible defines a friend, is that of truthfulness. A friend is a person who will tell you the truth regardless of whether or not you want to hear it or whether or not you like it. And the title of our sermon this evening from Galatians chapter 4 verses 12 through 16 is simply True Friends. This evening Paul is going to speak of the blessedness of the gospel of truth which he endeavored to impart to the people in Galatia the time of true joy and fellowship among them, he'll consider. He'll also consider the transition in their hearts from friendship with him to tension and even opposition based upon this false gospel that they have embraced. You know, sometimes we can forget who our true friends are and who our enemies are. Sometimes we can forget that the ones who love us aren't always the ones who tell us what we want to hear, but the ones who tell us what we need to hear. Sometimes we forget that the ones who love us aren't always going to pander us, perhaps never pander us, or tickle our ears, or make us feel good in that sense. They're going to tell us what we need to know in order that we can become the very best that we can for ourselves, for others, and most importantly, for God. Now, our text opens this evening with Paul making a pointed appeal. In verse 12, he says this, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. He says, be as I am. And he explains this statement by saying, for I am as ye are. For weeks now, we have studied Paul's careful deconstruction of the need for the law in the life of a believer. He's shown us that the law is spiritual, that the law is good, yet the law is fulfilled in the life of a believer. He has revealed the law's purpose to bring the man, a man to Christ, but its insufficiency to get a man to God the Father. When Paul first came to the, these churches, he came as they were. He didn't insist upon the law. He didn't ask them to change their culture to conform to his law or his understanding. He called them as they were to become something new in Christ 
by faith. And now he says, be as I am. As Paul came to them as they were, now he's asking them to assume a similar mindset. As Paul came conditioning a life in Christ upon faith alone, now he is asking them to be that way as well. As Paul has become all things to all men that he may by all means win some, recognizing that these things are but the carnal and the material, so too he asks them to be as he is. Paul sets himself up as an example for them to follow. Very similar to the exhortation he made in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where he says this, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Such should be the exhortation of all who love the Lord, that we would live in such a way with such confidence before the Lord that we would be able to encourage others to follow us, knowing that as they follow us, they would indeed be moving closer to Christ. So he says, I beseech you, brethren, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Be as I am. I have left my Jewishness in order to minister to you, now be as I am, as I am, as ye are. Following this statement, Paul reassures them of something very important. He has been rebuking them for some time. He has told them that he is fearful of them, of the direction that they are going. He is now careful to make the point, however, that their actions are not seen by Paul as a personal wrong against him. He does not regard these actions as an offense or an attack against him in any way. Uh, that this is not the issue here. The issue here is not him. The issue is the truth. The issue is not him. The issue is the gospel. Paul is not... Um, speaking up to them. He's not mentioning these things to them because he feels hurt or he feels attacked. He's not trying to defend himself or vindicate himself. He is speaking up because he sees them abandoning the truth for a lie and this concerns him greatly. Paul is attempting to vindicate the truth. And as he tries to bring this point across to them, he reminds them of their interaction when he was first among them. He says in verse 13, Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. When Paul was first among them, he preached the gospel and he says that he preached the gospel through infirmity of the flesh. Now, as this, rela- as this kind of comes out in our King James Bible, uh, there's several different flavors with which we could uh, take this, but the most natural one is the idea that in the midst of an infirmity of the flesh, he preached the gospel to them. But if you go back to the originals, the Greek actually makes it quite clear that that's not the direction that he is going here. It's What, what he means by this is it's, it's more causal, that because of some physical problem, not, not that it was in the midst of a physical problem, but literally because of an infirmity of the flesh, he preached the gospel unto them. That it was some issue, some illness, some problem in his body that caused him to have the opportunity to preach unto them. Whether it was that that slowed him down a little bit and made him delay in a city for a while longer or several cities and because of the delays or because of how slow he was getting through or whatever the case may be, um, that gave an occasion by which these these people were able to be reached or, or whatever it might be. But this is the idea here, causally, because 
of some physical problem, Paul had occasion to preach the gospel unto them. And Paul never really tells us what this issue is, but we can gather some clues from several passages of Scripture littered throughout the New Testament that might give us some possibilities as to what that problem was. We'll learn more about that or we'll consider that more as we get into verse 15. However, Paul says in verse 14, as we continue in the text, he says, And my temptation, which was in the flesh, ye despise not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. As Paul continues to think back upon this time, he remembers that the churches did not despise him, nor did they reject him during this time where he was dealing with this physical infirmity. Rather, he says, they received him as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ Himself. Now, we spoke of this when we were in Galatians chapter 3, when Paul was referencing the giving of the law by the angels into the hands of a mediator. That the word angel in the Bible simply means messenger. And while it always seems to reference one who would be perceived as a divine messenger, one who has a, a message from the Lord, it isn't necessarily a requirement in the text that these divine messengers were spiritual in nature, that they were angelic beings, divine in origin or spiritual in origin. And I'd like us to consider uh, for just a moment some verses where we might see the possibility of angels being men and not spiritual beings. Not, Not that the men were angels, don't get me wrong, but that the word angel as used in the scriptures, doesn't inherently demand a spiritual being. And one of the first ones that we see is in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. I'm not doing these sequentially, but in Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, the scriptures tell us, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this is not one of the more definitive ones, but this is an interesting passage of Scripture. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says that when you are hospitable to strangers, it may just be that you are being hospitable to an angel. Now, the reference very well could, uh, it's not beyond God to have spirit beings, angelic spirit beings that are still interacting with men today as we see it in the Old Testament, so that one might actually be interacting with some angelic being. And yet, as we consider this idea of entertaining or being hospitable to strangers, because some have entertained angels unawares, uh, perhaps it brings our minds to some other scriptures uh, that are more physical in nature. In Galatians chapter 6, where we aren't yet, but we'll get someday. Um, that doesn't sound very good to say someday. We'll get there in a month and a half or so. Um, Um, In the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 6, the Bible charges us to do good to all men and especially those that are of the household of faith. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus Christ is teaching and he says that when we minister to the very least of his followers, we are likewise ministering unto him. So, as I mentioned, while it's not beyond thought to believe that the Lord might have spiritual, angelic beings assuming the form of men to bless and to guide. It is also particular, particularly if we do regard the word angel as being able to be used of humans who simply are tasked by God with a message or with a, with a purpose for Him, that these angels unawares that we are attending are, are human. 
not necessarily spirit. You say, well, pastor, that's not a very convincing example. I know. But let's continue through a few more. In James chapter 2, verse 25, uh, this is, is indeed one of the most convincing that we see here. Um, as we read this, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? This particular uh, verse in James harkens back to a time uh, when Joshua and the nation of Israel was going into the land of Canaan. And they sent two spies into the city of Jericho to spy it out before they, as it were, attacked it. And those two spies ended up hiding in the, the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab. Now, there's nothing in the Old Testament text that implies in any way, shape, or form that those men were anything other than men. They were, they were in Israel. They were of Israel. They were sent by Joshua. They were two men chosen out of the ranks of, of Israel to go and to spy out the land. There's nothing that implies that they were spiritual, angelic beings. And yet here in James 2.25, James uses this word, and it's translated in this text, messenger, not angel, and yet it's the very same Greek word that we see regularly translated angel. And this is one of those cases where we would believe or we would recognize that a human can be referred to as the Greek word angelos or angel. We also see a similar um, idea in the first five chapters of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is writing to the seven churches in Asia and specifically he speaks to the angel of the seven churches. In Revelation 2.1, he speaks to the angel of the church of Ephesus. In Revelation 2.8, he speaks to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now again, there's nothing that would rule out the idea that these are truly spiritual beings, angelic beings, as we consider the fact that um, Satan has individual demonic angels that are assigned to different regions and different countries. And as we see that God has assigned certain angels over different uh, people and different uh, nations and different people groups and such, we might understand that, that each church or, or that each col uh, church collective in a region or whatever the case may be might be uh, have an angel that is tasked with protecting and and uh, that is tasked with doing some things uh, for God in that area. However, it wouldn't really make sense for Jesus Christ to be writing to them, would it? Why would Jesus need to write in physical text that we are reading to an angelic being? And here we find that the, the man John, as he's on the Isle of Patmos, is writing unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And so we would see here, knowing that that word angel is messenger, we would perhaps see, it would perhaps make more sense that we would see that word as reflecting of a human person that is tasked with a message from the Lord. We might even consider it, as many do, to simply be the pastors or the elders of those churches that John is writing to. The angel of the, that church, the messenger of that church, the one who's declaring the word of God to that church. 
These are all various examples of where that word angel might mean something other than an angelic being. A final thought uh, before I jump back into the text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I would like to reference one more instance where we see this word used, one that pertains into the context that we find ourselves. Beginning in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 12, going through verse 9, we read this. I knew such a man, whether in body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think me of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here we see a passage where Paul is speaking of not glorying in himself. He says he will glory in a man he once interacted with in a vision, but not in himself. He says that in order to to help him stay humble, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And he calls this thorn in the flesh in verse 7, a messenger, that's the word angel, a messenger from Satan to buffet him. Now, this messenger is called a thorn in Paul's flesh, indicating that it is something either troubling him physically or it's something that is troubling him in his sin nature that he cannot conquer. There are theories about both, that it could be a sin nature issue, that it could be a a physical infirmity. It seems more likely that this thorn in the flesh would be a physical issue and may even be the same problem that Paul is speaking of here in Galatians chapter 4, which we will reference soon. It seems a bit biblically inconsistent to say that it was a sin problem that was his thorn in the flesh. When the Bible tells us that we are capable through the Spirit of God of living free from sin, of overcoming sin, why would God then tell Paul that he's not going to let him conquer a sin, but that his grace will have to be sufficient in the midst? We know that God's grace is sufficient in the midst of our sins, but it, it would be seemingly a little bit biblically inconsistent for this thorn in the flesh to be a sin issue it seems far more likely that the thorn in the flesh is a physical problem, a physical infirmity that Paul was dealing with that that was a hardship for him. And Paul says he asked the Lord three times, thrice, that the Lord would remove it from him and God actually tells him no. He will not remove the physical problem, but he will give him the grace to do what he needs to do in the midst of the physical problem. And Paul says, I choose rather to glory in this then. If it is here by God's will, if it is God's way, if it is to keep me humble, I will glory in this infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And, and so here Paul calls this issue, this thorn in the flesh, a messenger, an angel from Satan. And it seems as though very likely though it would be something that he attributes to the wicked one to distract him, to confuse him, to discourage him, it still seems quite physical. 
there are many elements in this passage that would lead us to the possibility that this angel, this physical, is, is a physical problem, not a spirit being. So we've considered all of these aspects, and, and the point is, I guess you could say, a little bit moot this evening, because as we recognize what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 4, verse 14, he says, you received me as an angel of God. It, it would not be interpretively a problem for us to say you did receive me as an angelic being, but it seems more clear and more consistent that Paul is saying you received me as one who is representing Jesus Christ, representing the Word of God. This is not blasphemous in any way. It's not that they elevated Paul to the level of Jesus Christ but rather they accepted Paul's message with the same authority that they would have given to Jesus himself or that they would have given to the Word of God. Now, we recognize that it's not always healthy to accept what men say at face value or to elevate a man in word to the extent where you trust him that much. In fact, Paul declared a special blessing in the book of Acts to the church of Berea, right? And the church of Berea was a church, uh, it was a group of men, it wasn't a church at the beginning, it was a group of people, a group of Jews who, unlike Thessalonica where they just kicked them out, the Bereans, when they heard Paul's truth claims, went back to the scriptures, searched them, and compared what he was saying to scripture. And he said that because they had done so, they were in fact more noble than the, Thessal- than the Thessalonians. Obviously, Uh, the idea of them going back and searching the Scriptures was less possible when he went to Galatia, as it was the Gentile world. They didn't have the Old Testament. And in Paul's case, uh, it was absolutely not necessary because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a divinely chosen representative. And Paul said, Do you remember when I was with you, you accepted me as an angel of God, as a divine messenger from the Lord. You accepted me even as Jesus Christ Himself. You accepted the Word of God from me without any questions. You accepted the Word of God and you put your full faith in the Word as I delivered it. Now in this age, as you think of now, we should not ever fall into the rut of simply accepting a man's Word because we always have the Word of God at our disposal, at least at this point in history. And you should always be comparing what is said against Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And then within this context, Paul says this in verse 15. He says, Where is then this blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. The idea of Paul's question here does not reflect very well in our translation, but it's this. The Galatians had Paul among them and regarded this at the time as a tremendous blessing of God. They saw him, they saw the gospel as a blessing from the Lord. That God would have sent one of his apostles to them and blessed them with the privilege of learning directly. Even more so, it would have seemed Paul's infirmity was the cause for their meeting so that they were able to discern the goodness of God and the divine circumstance that led to their conversion. Perhaps you've been in one of these circumstances before where um, you you had a car problem or or you had an issue and you had to, to pull over 
or uh, you, you forgot something at the store and you needed to run back in. And when you get there, there's an opportunity to meet someone or to talk with someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, wow, if it hadn't have been for that problem, if it hadn't have been for that issue, I never would have met them. If it hadn't have been for that problem, there never would have been the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems as though that was kind of the cir- circumstance here that Paul had this infirmity of the flesh and it was through this infirmity that the Lord brought him to them and perhaps they, they, they sit there and say, wow, we never would have heard the gospel if it had not been for this infirmity. And they saw the blessedness of this and they were so thankful for Paul and they were so thankful for the gospel and they were so thankful for the circumstances that brought it together. And now he asks them, where then is the blessedness ye spake of? Where is the benefit you once saw? Where is the divine hand that you once recognized? Why is it that at that time you saw all of this as God's will leading you to the truth? And now as you look back upon it, you say, wow, uh, the, the, you, you look back upon it with almost scorn as now you've accepted this false gospel and everything that I taught you was false and all of that excitement and all of that love for the Lord. Are you telling me that it's false, he says? Are you telling me that all of that blessedness that you spoke of, all of that joy that you had, all of the, the way that you thought of me, the way that you thought of the gospel, that that was all a sham? What has changed So that whereas before you regarded my ministry, Paul would say, among you as a gift from God, now you have rejected that ministry among you and gone to a different message. He says, my message hasn't changed. The truth hasn't changed. Jesus Christ hasn't changed. Where is the blessedness he spake of? As Paul seeks to remind them of the deep love and fellowship that they once shared between one another, he bears record that they would have been willing, he says, to, to pluck out their own eyes and give them to him. It's an interesting statement. And this verse perhaps gives us a little insight into Paul's infirmity of the flesh. It would appear that perhaps the problem that he was dealing with at the time was a problem with his eyes or a problem with his vision. It may even be that this is the same thorn in the flesh from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the one he was asking God to remove from him, some problem with his eyes. Now, we know several things about Paul's time in Galatia. In Acts 14, we know that while he was in Lystra, the Jews stirred up the city, they stoned him, and they stoned him so severely that they thought he was dead or at least they threw him outside of the city and left him for dead. And the scriptures tell us that he got up, he got back on his feet, he went back in the city, he started preaching the gospel. But if you've got stones flying at you, it's quite possible that one of them hitting your head would affect your vision, affect your capacity to see. And maybe it is that when he got up and went to the city, he ended up being taken in by a certain group of people. And as he was healing from his injuries, that was the time wherein he was able to preach to them the gospel. And maybe at this time, as they were so thankful to God that he was there, even though that he was marred and he had been bruised and battered by those stones, perhaps it was that they say, they said, Paul, we wish we could just take out our eyes and give them to you. That was the love that they had for him as he preached the gospel to them. Perhaps that's the scenario 
that's being spoken of here. There are some other things in Scripture that would lend us to this thought process. We know that quite regularly, Paul did not write his epistles himself. He had someone else write them for him, called an amanuensis. He would dictate, they would write, and this may perhaps have been because he had a hard time seeing. He had a hard time writing because of the, the difficulties of his eyesight. So there's some various things that that might lend itself to that conclusion. We can't know, though, quite uh, fully what what the problem was. That's just kind of piecing some some of the puzzle pieces together. Either way, what Paul is saying here is that the love that he and these believers had for each other testified quite evidently of the truth of the unity of the Spirit. And all of this leads to kind of a, a question in verse 16, the point where Paul asks this, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? In the context of this love that they had for one another, the deep friendship and blessed Christian fellowship they had, Paul asks this question, Did I go from being a friend to an enemy simply because you have been called away to an error? You have accepted an error and I'm trying to call you back to the truth. Is he their enemy because rather than support them and be happy for their new perspective on the gospel, he's rebuking them and calling them back to the truth? Does that make him an enemy? That's his question. We're all tempted to make enemies out of those who would rebuke us or those who would contradict us or call us out on an error. But is it not the essence of love to seek to guide people into truth? And this is Paul's point. He's not doing what he's doing as an enemy. In fact, an enemy would like nothing more than to see a person perpetuate in error. But it is a friend that is bold enough and loving enough to tell you when you're wrong, to help correct you and to lead you back to the right. And this brings us to our points of application this evening where we talk about true friends. And our first point is this. True friends... Tell us the truth carefully, but clearly. True friends tell you the truth. We, read at the, we read at the beginning of our time together in Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The idea behind this proverb is that the wounds of a friend are faithful wounds. When a friend must rebuke you, it isn't fun. It isn't fun for him. It's not fun for you. Nobody's enjoying themselves, but it's intended for your best good. When a parent sees a child reach his hand for a hot stovetop, the father smacks that child's hand, hurting him, but in hurting that child, he is trying to do what's best for the child, not just to keep that child from a greater pain, but to keep that child from perhaps irreparable damage. Sometimes the only way a friend can help a friend is by hurting that friend. When a friend is making wrong decisions, you don't want to tell them that they're doing wrong, but if you love them, you will not allow them to persist in their sin without opposing them. When a friend is asking for favors that will confirm them in their bad decisions or in their irresponsible actions, if you love them, you will not unquestionably support them or indefinitely support them in their bad decisions and unwise actions. But as I say this, I temper this in this way. 
as we see how God deals with us, and the scriptures tell us that Jesus is a friend to us, Jesus Christ said, I call you my friend. As we see how God deals with us and how our Savior leads us, He is very careful, isn't He? And very patient. He's very clear about what is right and what is wrong, but He is very patient on how He communicates His message. He doesn't begin with heavy rebuke. He begins with loving chastening. He leads us into the truth. I've often noticed in my own life how God deals with issues and a lot of times He'll deal with them one at a time. I know I've got lots of problems and God is, I'm, I'm, I'm working on them, but you know, God is really dealing with one thing and then the next thing and He's careful not to weigh us down and crush us with the reality of our sin or with our, our shortcomings. We know that grace overcomes it all, that the love of Jesus Christ pervades, and yet as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ, He's very patient. He shows us our errors through counsel, through other loving friends. He brings people to highlight certain elements of the Word of God. But if we persist in disobedience, God eventually must bring us to our knees through heavy chastening. We see this example, perhaps in our lives, we see this example in Israel, where God for hundreds of years sent prophets, and He warned, and He warned, and He sent the signs, and He had those, those things, some minor, some severe, telling Israel, there's a problem, you need to fix it, there's a problem, you need to fix it. And it would be centuries before God brought them to the fullest extent of their judgment. He was very careful. He was very patient. So too his friends. We have the privilege of telling the truth, but being kind, being tactful, being deliberate in our wounds. Where a small wound would do, we don't need to make a big one. Where a rebuke would do, we don't need to make it a bigger deal. There's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And the manner in which we tell the truth can be just as, if not more important, than, how, than what we say, than the truth that we tell when it comes to whether or not the person that hears it is going to accept it or reject it. And at the point, the point that, that needs to be made here is this. The medium of delivery of the truth is often just as important as the content of the message. When a point can be made with a single gentle nudge, one doesn't need to make it a hard push. There's a time and a place for everything. And circumstances often dictate actions. But a friend is not just a truth teller. A friend is a person who is seeking your best. That is what it means to love. When I am in marriage counseling with a couple and I start talking about how um, to handle disagreements and how to bring up problems when a wife is having trouble with a husband, when she's been hurt, and, and that wife needs to communicate that to her husband, I often tell the wife there is a time and a place to communicate problems. And the time and the place is not right as he walks in the door from work and he's hungry and he, he, he wants dinner 
and he's tired and it's been a tough day. You don't know what kind of day he's had. That is not the time to throw on his plate what the kids have done today, uh, what, what the problems have been, or not the time to say, hey, could I talk to you for a moment about what you did two days ago? It's really been bought. That's just not the time. But if you let him get settled, if you put some food into his belly, and then you approach him, th- there's going to be an entirely different attitude to the problem. This is the idea. And, and that's, that's an example, not so much telling the truth as much as, as solving a problem, but, but perhaps you get the idea with that, that there's a time and a place, there's a way that you approach a friend when it's time to tell the truth. There's a manner in which you do it. There's words that are said. Uh, there, there's so many different factors that play into the truth. And while we don't want to be guilty of avoiding the truth or ignoring the truth, there is something called tact and timing. And we do need to think about that as well. The truth can be told in a way that is more damaging than helpful if it's not tempered by wisdom and care. So true friends tell the truth carefully but clearly. The truth needs to be made clear, but it also needs to be approached carefully. The second point, and our final point this evening, the true friends seek for the vindication of truth and the well-being of their friend, not the vindication of themselves or their own well-being. Paul mentioned specifically in our text today, ye have not injured me at all, he said. Even though their journey into Judaism may in many ways have, have affected his relationship with them, and, and maybe it did hurt him because of all the time and the effort and the prayer that he put into them, he was not writing this rebuke to them out of some personal offense but out of concern for the truth and for their best good. Proverbs 17.17 tells us, A friend loveth at all times. Paul's concern was not for his own pride. He's not writing them saying, Hey, look, I've got a record to keep here and you're on my list of churches. Uh, You're on my success list. And I don't want to have to move you to my not success list because that's going to look bad for me. So you need to straighten up here so that you can be one of my successes. He's not, he's not thinking about that. That's not his concern here. It's not a pride issue with him. He's writing to help them, even though they may not have wanted it. He is writing to establish the truth even though they may have rejected it. He didn't care about how they saw him or if they liked him as long as they had every opportunity to make the right choices spiritually and become spiritually successful. We often define love in this church in this way, that love is doing what is best for the object of that love regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstance. Love can sometimes come at great personal cost and disadvantage, can it not? There are times where in order to bless and to love another, you have to put yourself in a very disadvantageous position. Sometimes when we love someone or when we love something, doing what is best means doing what is difficult. Sometimes it means placing ourselves in vulnerable positions where we can and might very well get hurt. Telling the truth often is not fun but it is necessary. Telling the truth can sometimes cause a rift between people, a rift you would never ask for or never want, but a rift that is more a reflection of your love than it is anything else. There's a danger to love. There's a danger to truth. There's a danger that truth will bring us to a place uh, that, that hurts us. 
But it's not about us. It's about them. What is best for your friend. Sometimes the truth will make a person hate you. But only because they fail to see that the truth is what is best for them. Sometimes the well-being of another means doing things they can't understand or don't like, yet it is in their best interest. I don't know that there's a parent in this room or listening online that would not attest to the fact that they've had to do things that their children have been upset about for their best good. That they've had to tell their children the uncomfortable truth for their best good. Parents, you discipline your children because it is what is best for them. They don't always like it. Sometimes they may even be upset at you for it. But when they gain a perspective to see that what you are doing is in their best interest, perhaps then they understand. Sometimes a boss or a colleague or, in my case, a congregation comes up and tells us an area that we have been wrong or in which we are deficient. Our temptation is to be angry at their words. But Proverbs 9.9 tells us, Give instruction to a wise man and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Sometimes someone comes up to us and tells us the truth. You need to shape up in this area. This is a problem. You said that and that was wrong. You did that and that was wrong. You should not have gone there. You should not have said that. You should not have acted in that way. And we are tempted or desirous to take offense. But the wise man understands that those who come to them with the truth and tell them the truth and correct them in the truth are trying to make them better. The wise man understands that friends do this. And the true friend understands that it is his or her duty to elevate the truth and to seek the best interest of their friend or their child. Parents, as your child, children get into those teenage years, there are some difficult conversations that need to be had. Fathers, there's some difficult conversations that need to be had with your children. Difficult conversations about uh, the, the pursuing of an opposite gender. Difficult conversations about truth. Difficult conversations about integrity. Difficult conversations about virtue. But if you love your children, you will do it. Because love, friendship, a true friend, one who loves another, an extension of that love is truth. If you have friends that tell you the truth, cherish them because they're rare and they're a gift from God. If you have people in your life, children, a parent, or siblings, maybe a sibling, or a boss, or, or simply what we would regularly consider a friend, who is a true friend indeed, one who will tell you the truth even when it hurts. They'll, they'll approach you carefully, but they'll, they'll tell you the truth even if you don't want to hear it. One who will be gentle, be tactful, seek to spare you, but will always tell you the truth. These are the true friends. You should thank God for them. Don't despise them. Love them. And as we close this evening, a couple of questions to ask you. First, are you a true friend? Do you seek the well-being of those that you love even at the expense of yourself through the truth? Are you willing to clearly and carefully speak the truth even when it might not be what they want to hear?
do you have this kind of a friend? How have you treated this friend? And I use that word friend. Young people, I'd like you to think of your parents here. I'd like you to think of your pastor. I'd like you to think of those in your life, maybe, maybe uh, siblings, as well as friends that we would regularly consider or neighbors and such. Do you have the kind of friend who will indeed tell you the truth, tell you what you need to hear? Maybe it's a person that you've been at odds with because of the, the truth that they've told to you. And you need to make it right. Tell them that you see that they had your best interest in mind. Maybe this is a person who you simply need to thank, confirming them in their friendship and thus encouraging their truth-telling to continue. I close with a final exhortation from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. We've gotten to the Proverbs a lot this evening because the Proverbs has a lot to say about friends. And we read this in Proverbs 18, 24. A man who hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now Jesus is the ultimate example of the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But are you this kind of a friend? the kind of a friend that will pour yourself into another, that even though you're not a blood relation, you will just pour yourself in. You will just give all that you have for their best good. Sometimes that means support. Sometimes that means resist. Sometimes that means coming alongside and encouraging them. Sometimes that means confronting them. Are you a friend to others? Because a man that would have friends needs to show himself friendly. May God help us to be good friends. And may God bless us with these good friends for His glory and for our best good. Let's pray.